Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Anne Kingston, journalist at McLean's. Jesse Brown. Podcast or extraordinaire. Welcome back to my studio and welcome to Shortcuts for the first time. I have never been on Shortcuts, so I've been in the studio. It's long overdue. It's good to have you. you here. And today we are going to talk about that burning question Can men disgraced by accusations of sexual assault and harassment ever find redemption, absolution, forgiveness, and also get their cool media careers back? Because apparently that's all the same thing. I'm here for it. <laughs> good to have you. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Christopher Powells, Aaron Basdeo, Bihan Shahir, Jeff St. Pierre, Andrew Eisenberg, Bert Lobb, Blair Antcliffe, and Devin Wong. I support Canada Land because for a number of years I was really craving Canadian podcast content that would meet the same high standards as the shows I was used to from the NPRs and Radiotopias south of the border. And when I discovered you and Canada Land and your righteous indignation, uh, I knew right away that I had to support it. 
And this episode is also brought to our listeners by FreshBooks. You have a steady gig. You don't have to send invoices to anybody, right? I send the occasional invoice, but yeah, I do have a steady gig. If you send the occasional invoice, you might want to look at FreshBooks. (laughs) It's the better way to send invoices. Your invoices look great, and more importantly, they get you paid much faster than anything else. You can see cool stuff that you kind of can't help but check out, like when did the client look at my invoice, and how often have they looked at it, and how long has it been since I got paid, and they know that you can see that, and that also means you get paid quicker. It all kind of, it's like surveillance on the people who employ you. If that's not enough incentive, they've rebuilt their platform from the ground up. They've taken simplicity and speed to an entirely new level and added powerful new features. You can try it all out for free for 30 days because you listen to this show. You don't need a credit card. You just go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand and enter CanadaLand in the How Did You Hear About Us section. So, and we've both covered the Gameshi case at various times in its development. Because I was involved in breaking that story, I have been a person who gets tips through the years about his various comeback attempts. I get people saying, I'm, I'm at this podcast studio in New York. He's here now. I think he's planning a podcast. I get tips. Oh, he's shopping around a syndicated radio show. I'm told, oh, he's, he's, he's trying to get a book deal. I've been aware that he's been kind of trying to strategize and angle his way back into some form of higher ability within the media since everything went down. And I have not been able to help but wonder, like, is is there a formula that could work for this guy? Is there a path? And, and what should we expect? In a million years, I did not imagine that we would see him writing an essay in the New York Review of Books. Were you as surprised as I? I was surprised for a couple of reasons. First of all, Gomeshi's not a writer, even though he has, you know, written a memoir, a very popular, well-received memoir when he was the host of Q. But that's not really his strong suit. We know now that the essays that he was known for on Q were written by unnamed Q producers. I felt that the New York Review of Books was a really interesting choice. They don't publish personal essays. But then I wondered whether I kind of gave the New York Review of Books a bit of credit here and thought, is this going to be some groundbreaking kind of revelatory, self-probing piece that actually does create a platform on which he can re-enter the conversation, in which he talks about a sense of contrition and also even perhaps points to, you know, how he wants to pave way for his public redemption. Mm -hmm. That did not happen. (laughs) I Listen, I'm not going to talk about the quality of writing or, you know, to to this idea that like anything he does now is very stage managed and polished. I actually believe he wrote that thing. So do I. Um, It has all the hallmarks. Yeah. You know, the level of self-awareness or lack thereof, I will leave to others to criticize. I'm I'm not going to do kind of like a uh, criticism of the essay. And in terms of the content, you know, we published a fact check where we Mm -hmm. found many, many manipulations, obfuscations and just outright inaccuracies. So I've already said what I know about that essay. So I guess I now want to say what I think about it, like my opinion of this question, can he come back? And it's funny because we're talking today. It's uh, it is the day of atonement for my people. Today. Right. Yes, it is. And I'm a bad Jew because I'm here working. I got my days mixed up. And I'm also a cranky Jew because I haven't eaten. So bear with me. But I'm thinking about this question of forgiveness I'm not going to get spiritual here. Like, it's just very simple. Before reconciliation comes truth, right? And and I think that from a media perspective, can these guys come back? I think that some of them can. I think that if Louis C.K. were to say to the public, I have admitted the truth of the allegations and I have gone to my accusers 
and basically sat down with them, or my representative has sat down with them and said, listen, you know, Louis wants to work and he wants your blessing. And he has apologized and he's acknowledged the truth of it. What else is it going to take? Uh, this has had an impact on your career. We can talk about that. If he were to come back and say, the people who I hurt are okay with me coming back, then I think that a lot of people in the public would say, okay, we're okay with it too. And if you didn't, you didn't have to watch him. That's my feeling is that it is possible for some of these guys. The problem with Gameshi is that for him to actually have any kind of sense of like that he's turned the corner with this, he would have to, he's never actually engaged with the substance of the allegations. So I'm not going to say he has to say they're all true, but he hasn't looked his accusers in the face or sat down and shown them the respect of going through what they say he did and saying, well, I feel like I had consent. And they would say in certain cases, well, there was no discussion of consent. Or in other cases, well, I don't believe that I consented for the things that actually happened. And then that would ultimately get checked against things like the Canadian Criminal Code, where you can't agree to certain acts of grievous bodily harm. And then he might find himself opening himself up to all sorts of criminal liability, liability for lawsuits. Mm -hmm. And I, I know of two other women who haven't come forward yet. So he's in a trap. I feel like he's in a purgatory of his own making where it might be like humans have an amazing capacity for forgiveness and for worse crimes than he's accused of. But unless you reckon with what is alleged, I don't know that that's ever going to be possible for him. I agree with you. I think that this we're in uncharted territory in terms of what this arc looks like and what the various components are. But certainly, you know, beginning with an essay in a prestigious magazine that only reflects the power that you still obviously have in order to be published in said magazine is probably not, you know, the best first step. You know, as I mentioned earlier, to have published that piece, and I don't think it was the first step. I think there should have been groundwork done in terms of reaching out um, to people and opening himself obviously up for liability. So there's it's problematic. But what I, the scope, you know, and this is going to the content of the story, not besides the fact that there are so many factual misrepresentations throughout it and glossing over of, of the truth. But there is no place where he recognized that perhaps he was wrong even. It was no, there was self-pity, realized pity for the people who have to interact with him on a daily basis, how embarrassed and awkward it is to, mm -hmm. to deal with him. But the piece was utterly absent any compassion, any remorse, any sense of the the scope of the damage that he did, not only within the CBC, you know, that's sort of where it began because that's where his power arose, but also just more generally with more than 20 women who were technically friends of his. We're not talking about random, random yeah, these strangers. These are people who knew him well, who he was intimate with. Who, who have all come forward with the same version of events, yeah. but at no point is he you know, reflecting on the fact or changing his mind or even countenancing the idea that his behavior was wrong. He's repurposing it. His lens has not changed. And as a result, that was, you know, it made for a very frustrating first salvo. If that is, in fact, what it was, it was another failure. You bring up an interesting question of the power that he still wields. And I think, you know, it's been observed that his only qualification for writing an essay in the New York Review of Books is that he's accused of sexually assaulting or harassing dozens of people. Even Jean Gomeshi is most famous, you would not have read in the New York Review of Books. No. But there's another power that he has. And, you know, this is like, you bring up a lot of good points. And I agree with you that, like, the insight isn't there. But, you know, to weigh, does he really mean it? Has he really come to understand it? Is kind of like trying to come to terms, get some understanding of what's within his heart and soul. I kind of don't give 
give a damn about what's in his heart and soul. You know, and again, returning to my, my people's uh, moral tradition, it's more important what you do than what you think. Like, even if you're just going through the motions, if you actually, like, are behaving in a good way. So the power that he wields right now is a power that, for all the power that's been stripped of him, he has a very unique power that only he has. His accusers, and probably Lucy de Couture more than anyone, is harangued on a daily basis because Gian Gomeshi's position remains she's a liar. And there's a virulent little group of, of internet trolls who are making life on the internet for her miserable and others so that she can't use like Twitter, uh, I would imagine, and she's talked about this, you know, for, for sake of her mental health. If Gomeshi were simply to say, this woman is not lying or there's validity to what this woman has accused me of, please leave her alone. His actions could help her right now. And, and in doubling down and reiterating in a softer way, oh, I can't acknowledge or apologize for things that aren't true. He is egging them on. He has re-stimulated that hornet's nest and they're on her again. So he's still hurting these people. I think that is correct. And I think it's important to sort of highlight the fact that this conversation is important because it exposes the underlying dynamics in, of which, you know, gave rise to Me Too. The fact that we're having this conversation, the fact that Gomeshi has finds himself in the spotlight. We're talking about Gian Gomeshi again. We're not talking about the broader scope of the damage. And I think that should be discussed. I think for him to turn to Lucy de Cater, for instance, and say, I did something wrong would be a revelation, mm -hmm. would be a huge, important revelation. And I think I want to talk about something that we don't talk about. And it has come out of this essay, and that is the fact that Gian Gomeshi was acquitted in court. It's more complicated than that. He wasn't. There was a peace bond. He issued an apology to Catherine Borrell, the fourth complainant. Yeah, he was accused of sexual assault and then apologized. However, however, in the courtroom, the complainants giving testimony were completely decimated by Marie Hennon in terms on grounds of credibility yeah. of, you know, using incorrect language, inconsistencies, not reporting the full account, not leaving huge gaps in their testimony. That was all true. But she did not ever really attack the, the grounds of the assault. The actual essence of the assault was never, she never went after no, that. He, he never took the stand. And he never took the stand, which is his, you know, prerogative or right, whatever. But the judge, if you read the judgment, the judge also kind of alludes to that as well. He could come to no other, nobody in that court thought that there could ever be any uh, decision than acquittal given the credibility of the witnesses. However, I think that it's important to note that the damage that he did more more collectively, you know, in terms of 20 women, that is huge. And he is not beginning to address that in this particular piece. In fact, he's going back to earlier narratives about sexual. He, he's turning this into sort of sexual preferences, all of this sort of thing. He's trying to rewrite it. And that is damaging in terms of the larger conversation that we're having about this. I mean, leaving Gomeshi aside, this idea that, you know, this kind of violence within a sexually consensual relationship is somehow OK, is not OK. I mean, I, it was an expanded version of his Facebook post. Well, really. basically, and it was sort of like, what is he? Does he have anyone? helping him here? Does he even have an editor protecting him from himself? It appears not. But I think that what's damaging, and I think when you speak about, you know, sort of reaching out and saying I, what I did was wrong or, you know, I want to hear what you have to say even about this, that would be an opening. That would be somewhere new to take this conversation. Yeah. Right now we're kind of in this Mobius strip, unfortunately, but it's not just a Mobius strip. It's one that's kind of incendiary and getting hotter by the second. It is. Uh, it's sort of both those things. That it feels like it's kind of to a boiling point, but also just so repetitive. Like, circuit, yeah. I mean, one thing about this is that like the act of getting the facts out there 
was tremendously difficult for no one more so than my original sources. Mm-hmm. Um, and my original sources were not a part of the, the criminal trial and never, never took the stand. Catherine Brell was part of that original story and then that one resulted in the peace bond and the apology. But fighting with the Toronto Star to get this out, fighting with his lawyers, being threatened by his lawyers, and then other reporters, yourself included, bringing all kinds of other facts about his past and his professional behavior. It was just like this process of journalism to get the facts out there was really a labor. And then you think, okay, it's on the record. It's out. And then there's this uh, an effort to erase all of the facts. And one thing I'm learning from this is like that the burden on a reporter is like, no, I have to kind of vouch for these facts in perpetuity and it'll cycle. Like there will always, as long as this is a narcissistic person who's always going to be trying to get back and I will always have to be reminding people. It's not up to me whether he gets to come back or not, but I will be damned if people forget what we know is true about this guy. My last question for you before we, because I want to talk about the wider relevance between Kavanaugh and other things. There's all kinds of other manifestations of this that we're going to get to in our second segment later on. But let's deal with this like basic media strategy. Can he come back? I think the conception right now is this was a huge failure, this essay. I'm not so sure I want to hear what you have to say. Has this gained him any ground? I think it's put him on the spotlight. We're having this conversation about him. I think we have to remember he tried before with a a podcast, The Ideation Project, Big Ideas. That kind of flamed out. He wasn't, you know, he was criticized for that. The question becomes, what's his next step? I mean, will this be an entree of sorts to literary New York? The simple fact that he has been published on the cover of the New York Review of Books, is that enough? That's something. That, that is that, something. Any writer would really be happy for that. You know, but are we going to reevaluate what that means mm-hmm. as opposed to give it credibility? And my concern is that we will not forcefully rethink what, what it means to be published in the New York Review of Books. I think that it's kind of um, – it may be a bit of an illusion that everyone is so united. Like there was no support for that essay that I read. Everyone, even just on a casual level, it just doesn't read as true. And I think people don't like being lied to. So I, I feel like like in the short term, it was a failure. And yet, you know, it was a hot story. It got everybody talking. It got his name around again. And it was a very esteemed publication. So if the New York Review of Books can provide a platform for Jean Gameshi, would Joe Rogan have him on, you know? And for every thousand people who are disgusted by him, can he find one curious person? Or there's certainly a lot of people out there who are like, I'm really thinking that this Me Too thing has gone too far. Can he somehow reorient himself as, can he do a new version of Q where he interviews Charlie Rose and interviews uh, Louis C.K. And, and does that show that Charlie Rose was trying to do? Well, Charlie Rose wanted to do that himself, you know, talk, yeah. talk to men who have been accused. I'm not trying to help him here with any ideas, but I'm I'm just saying, like, I can actually kind of like, yeah, I I could conceive of that happening now that this has a bit of a of a stamp. Well, he's part. He's become. I mean, this is he is part of the cultural conversation again. He's at this, you know, he's he's thrust himself as he is very good at doing in the very center of that. And I think he'd rather be talked about negatively than not talked about at all. Well, I can't I can't speak to his. Yeah. personal pathology. But, you know, who knows? But the fact is that I think it's up to us or media more broadly is to keep the story broad and contextual and look at the look at the larger cost of, mm-hmm. of his behavior as opposed to focusing on his id or his psyche or whatever, whatever was on display in the New York Review of Books. And Kingston, you have listened to Shortcuts before, maybe, I hope, I pray. I have. So you know about Duly Noted. Guilty. Yes, I am. We know things. Can you can you start <laughs> us off? Yeah. I, my Duly Noted actually has to do with a website revamp at the Halifax Chronicle Herald. And they have uh, revamped their website, or they're in the process of it right now, it's a bit bumpy, to um, streamlining it with their sister publications in Atlantic Canada. 
The reason I found out about this was that I was looking for a story I'd read a week ago, uh, September 4th. The title of it was Reported Cases of Lyme Disease in Nova Scotia on the Rise. It was a pretty damning report talking about the rates doubling, about people going out of country for treatment, about ineffective testing in this country, a bunch of stuff. And I just wanted to file it. And it was nowhere to be found in the uh-huh. in the revamp. So when I went back on looking for the the story, the only thing I found was a story titled Nova Scotia's Health System Has a Handle Online. And it was written by Dr. Robert Strang, who happens to be the province's uh, chief medical officer. So no reference of the earlier story, just we've got this under control. It was a very short op-ed. It mentioned a local publication had published wrong information, no mention of the Herald, uh-huh. no mention of what that information was, no retraction from the Herald, no correction, just complete obliteration. So I think it's an interesting, you know, I will look into this. But the point is that with digitalization, we are going to see things just disappear without mention. We're not, we have no way of record keeping. Uh, the other point that's worth noting is that the sponsored content is now very formatted like news stories in a way that many people flipping through won't realize. So that's my that's my duly noted, and I think that we should kind of pay more attention to this. Oh, it's a good one. You know, the archiving thing, especially when there's so much tumult and sites are going up and down and businesses are going under, and there's just no industry standard for what we do with archives. You know, you kind of describe a situation where a critical piece disappears and a piece that sort of exonerates remains. We don't know if that was anyone's intention, but the record is is smeared and uh, the ability to know what actually happened, you know, is diminished or impossible. And you say like with digitization, in fact, digitization makes archiving that much more accessible and can make it that much mm-hmm. more permanent. Uh, and it's not even terribly expensive. And there are groups like Internet Archive that are like there to help. So if a company doesn't want to, you know, whatever costs are associated, it is possible to keep your archives up forever. But it is extraordinarily hard to find old newspaper articles. And this goes, this is true of like old Globe and Mail. There's databases that do a better job of it for pay databases. But, you know, They've been releasing this stuff publicly, you know, without, most of it is not paywalled, and yet you can't find what you're looking for. And if you go back beyond a certain year, it kind of all falls apart because they change their standards all the time. Yeah, it is very concerning. And also just the idea that a story can be completely eliminated without any reference as to why or what sort of standards or what the reasons were. I think those basic benchmarks should be in place. Duly noted. I have one. What is it? I have one. I'm going to tell you a little story, and you're going to tell me if this is me complaining as a business owner or if this is me uh, telling you something that people need to know as a media critic and reporter, because I'm not sure myself. So listeners of the show might remember that we have participated in the Hot Docs Podcast Festival for its first two years. In fact, when they started this thing, I was so excited that they were making Hot Docs. They're going to do a podcast festival. I introduced them to Casper, and that became their sponsor. And for the first two years of this festival, they've done a wonderful job of bringing up to Canada big American podcasts to do live performances, and then saying to the visiting American shows and industry people, hey, we've got some great Canadian stuff too, and we've been lucky enough to be featured um, in the first two years. And it's wonderful because the Canadian stuff, and it's not just Canada land, you know, other Canadian shows have done shows too that have done just as well as the American shows. So it's been a great, you know, like as these festival things go, we like to bring the big things to us and we like to show our things to the world. So the summer was rolling along and I kept saying, you know, I, I this year at Hot Talks, I'm going to try to pitch them because our Thunder Bay show is coming out. It would make a wonderful live show. And, you know, I was just immersed in other things. And I looked at the calendar every now and then and be like, huh, I haven't, I haven't got that phone call yet. 
And it never came. And ultimately, I got in touch with them and said, hey, you know, I um, haven't heard from you. We're getting close to the festival time. I want to pitch you this thing. You don't have to take it, but I think we got a really strong idea here. And they kind of said, thanks, but no thanks. That's fine. We don't deserve or own a spot. But what I learned is, as I finally, you know, spoke to them a bit more and saw their their lineup, is that the only Canadian content, the only Canadian podcasts that have big feature shows uh, during their kind of marquee times are CBC shows. And then I noticed that CBC Podcasts is their sponsor. Okay, that is a problem. You know, that, that, that might be a problem. Maybe that's a coincidence. Maybe it's a problem. It's a problem. It's an optics problem at minimum. Well, let me tell you this next part. The next part is that two of the CBC's four slots that they have are for their show called Podcast Playlist. Mm -hmm. Which is a compendium of podcasts. It's a compendium of podcasts. And when I said, I thought you guys were making space for Canadian podcasting and you, you were, you know, showing Canadian podcasts to the world. Said, oh, we're still doing that, but we've put CBC in charge of the curation. CBC is choosing which podcasts get space on their podcast playlist stage. Wait, I'm slightly confused. Is podcast playlist itself going to be presented yes. at... In, in podcast its... playlist is Matt Galloway and, and his co-host are going right. to be on stage. We're from podcast playlist and we are doing a live podcast here. And then they will bring up these other smaller podcasts and say, here's who we've chosen. So it would be like a tiff saying curating our animation is Disney or, you know, Sony Pictures is curating our dramas this year. Basically getting a commercial competitor in the market to curate that part. Right. I see. And that they also happen to be the sponsor and partner. And you know what? I'm not really aiming this, this salvo at the podcast festival, which I understand to be a small, scrappy, starving. They need all the help they can get. I don't know. I, I, you know, we're still participating as a ministry events with them. Good luck to them. I hope there's a podcast festival for many years. But CBC Podcasts is sponsoring this festival with like CBC money that they could be making podcasts with. And once again, you know, as a media critic covering other areas, I've heard from people like James Baxter at iPolitics and, you know, Joey Coleman in Hamilton that like CBC will divest itself. They'll take correspondents and reporters away from an area and then an independent will move in and then actually do well and establish a market. And then the CBC comes back as a competitor and tries to actually dominate that space. And I covered that. And now I'm experiencing it. Like CBC Podcasts did not exist. There was no CBC Podcasts, you know, unit when I started Canada Land. Canada Land, more than any, any other company, but along with some other companies, have developed the Canadian podcasting space. We've created a list of advertisers that are interested. We've helped Canadian listeners discover that there are such things as Canadian podcasts. And now I see CBC Podcasts coming in to compete. Great. Come compete. Make great shows to compete with me for listeners. Compete with me for producer talent. Let's like com competitions can be good, but they've decided that their role is to spend their kind of limitless resources. And and I I have worked the math. They're losing money on their podcasts. They're spending their CBC money to buy up these sponsorships to push other shows like out of the spotlight. And that's not just true in Toronto. There's a Vancouver podcast festival too. Big American shows and CBC shows. Who's the sponsor? CBC. Okay, I feel like I'm in this meta podcast bubble right now trying to make sense of this. Um, I think this is obviously a subject for a Canada Land podcast, uh, sort of in a larger sense, but I do think it's an interesting conundrum. It often happens, I'm noticing, not just with with TIFF, but at big thinky places where media sponsors, uh, Women in the World comes to mind, the Globe was a sponsor of that. You have people from the publication sort of uppermost. It becomes a platform for promotion. And when it comes to the fact that the CBC is a public, you know, 
resources, public broadcasters, taxpayer money. This to me is problematic. So I understand from the position of, you know, both both of your um, – There's a media of, story here. There's a media story here and it's also – I can see why you're pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> so am I doing my job as a media critic or am I just a whiny, big, sucky baby? Or can am I, I say both? both? Can I be both? Yeah. Let, right. I, pick, I pick both. <laughs> Duly noted. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Why did Harper's decide to publish John Hockenberry's essay? Well, before we go there, I'd like to uh, inform your readers. I mean, excuse me, I'm not thinking about my readers, that Mr. Hockenberry's in a wheelchair, which is something you really ought to... He's a paraplegic. So uh, he's a paraplegic. Yeah. What does that have to do with the fact that he was accused of sexual harassment? It, it's does hard to get out of him? your. It's hard to get out of your wheelchair and attack somebody. Okay, but, but hang on a second. What's your understanding yeah. of sexual harassment? You have to be no, touched. No, no, no. Because no, I mean, no, women no, are told. No. So let me just let, let, And he can't let, work it. He can't yeah, right, work anymore. Right. So let me let me just and, get. And, like, and, no, and, I, and hold on. Exception, We're out of and time. I take exception to your saying I'm flippant about this. Well, you, you taken, called me take, a Soviet. <laughs> no, no. I said we, we I, didn't go. you, no, I didn't call you. I'm sorry. Well, that's astonishing. <laughs> it is. It's like he's inventing a new form of mansplaining. It's like audible manspreading. He just is filling up all of the space in the uh, in the room. I mean, uh, your, your readers, I mean, listeners should know. I mean, how is he going to sexually harass anyone from a wheelchair? Well, interestingly, I mean, he's taking the baton from Huckabur's uh, own essay where he that he makes that point at the outset. So in a way, I think, you know, listening to MacArthur's talk about this, these are the talking points of the essay. He's illustrating, you know, quite rudely and patronizingly throughout this interview. He is using the same sort of critical points that are used in the Harper's essay. I want to point out, you know, 
before we get to anything else, that is the publisher of Harper's. Hard to believe. And Ian Baruma, who commissioned and edited Gameshi's piece for the New York Review of Books, is the editor of the New York Review of Books. And he was interviewed as well in Slate by Isaac Chotner. And he also sounded so stupid. Like, like these are supposed to be the smartest guys. If nothing else, all of this conversation has exposed the fact that these august publications are being run by out-of-touch kind of creepy guys. There's like, well, there's a few things. The creepiness, yes. Out-of-touch, yes. Definitely they, they seem out-of-touch. But they also just seem so dumb and 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 inept i mean they don't know how to be interviewed yeah well i mean in the ian baruma case uh for the gameshi piece he just didn't know any of the facts i mean when i saw that gameshi was in the new york review of books i thought like the only way that this got done is if they just didn't know the full extent of what this guy's been accused of and that was confirmed in the slate interview where he didn't know the extremity of the charges or how many accusers there were and then in this in this one the guy is his like read a room you know, he is so arrogant, MacArthur. I mean, but maybe that's the point. Like, you bring it up, right? Like, they're not just there saying, I'm here to defend my publication. They're defending the guys. Like, they are there to fight in the culture war on behalf of the resistance to Me Too. But they also really don't know what they're talking about. And what was interesting, I think, about um, the Harper's publisher's interview on The Current was the fact he was doing a few things. He was, you know, again, echoing a lot of the points that were made in Hockenberry's essay. But also, OK, he talked about Soviet-style re-education. He's trying to make the Me Too movement out, you know, conflating it with a fascistic kind of oppressive censoring movement, which, I mean, that's ridiculous for starters. But the second the second thing that he's doing is conflating, doing this thing that has become sort of a, a talking point, which has to do with the fact that the guy who violently rapes the Harvey Weinstein is being treated the same way as the guy who sends an inappropriate DM. And that has become, I think, a very prevailing mindset in arguing. And it's almost like you can't argue it because it's so fundamentally wrong. I think that people do understand that Weinstein is different. We're grappling with how, how this all plays out. But yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, he uh, attacks Anna Maria Tremonti for her tone. Well, I was waiting for the word shrill and hysterical to yeah. follow that. Yes, that's that's very telling. He, he's not just saying, oh, there is this kind of, you know, Soviet style persecution and you're doing it to me and I can tell by the way you're talking to me. And then, you know, they bring up, you know, Catherine Burrell had a statement that began with her saying in response to the Gameshi piece, I don't have time for this. And his the way he read that was like, this mob, this witch hunt doesn't even have time to read the essays, which is not what she was saying at all. No, it completely – it was so frustrating to listen to that interview. But to any thinking person, you would know that's not what she was – No, um, it wasn't. But it was taking the conversation somewhere else. And I think we have to be aware of this and call out call this out. This guy was so rude. He t- talked over Anna Maria Tremonti. He did not want to talk about the gist of what she was talking about, which was the distinction between her harassment and assault, which we one of the, you know, big revelations of Me Too, we're starting to recognize the, these delineations yeah. and that it all stems from the same place. But he was a disaster. And I think that we but we can't kind of we have to take it back to what this conversation should be really be about because he was he was wrong on so many fronts. No, yeah, I know. It's it's you can you can run the fact check. I mean, like to, to this argument that, you know, oh, there's no distinction between the Weinsteins like, well, no, I mean, like Aziz Ansari 
will suffer different and lesser consequences, you know, like, like as the, the, these different types of accusations come out, society is actually doing kind of a decent job. There's a certain amount of self-monitoring that's a, sort of recognizing these delineations. And I think people at the beginning, there was a lot of confusion because there was a, a torrent of people came forward feeling emboldened that they could talk about things that they hadn't talked about for years. And in the sort of mass confessional that took place, there was a lot of stuff. But I think that year in, we should be able to, you know, sort of calibrate that yeah. a lot better. And I think we're doing that. My read of both of these guys is that they, in choosing to publish this stuff and in the way that they're defending it, you know, like I don't think that with MacArthur, he was just dumbly playing the bully. Like, I think he was there for a fight and he was there like, like all no, he right. he wasn't I'll, playing the bully. He was a bully. I'll stare her down. I'll, yeah, yeah, we got one right here. She wants to talk to me. I'll talk to her. And, you know, if you thought that these dumb culture wars were, were just relegated to like stupid Twitter fights between me and John Kay. No, you can have one with the guy who publishes Harper's Magazine. He's just as, it's just as dirty. As you said, it's shocking to think that he is the front man for a publication that is seen to be cultured and civilized and a, uh, you know, place where civilized discussion takes place. And progressive. I mean, uh, that exactly. too. My read is, is that these older guys are working out some kind of psychodrama that is based on a really deep feeling that this is so unfair. It's unfair. They changed the rules on us and they're, they're applying these new rules retroactively. And there's, there's a sense in which they're right. It was okay and acceptable to behave in minor ways around in offices, in literary circles especially, for many, many years. And, you know, I, there's this babyish kind of frustration with like, this isn't fair. We used to have a lot more leeway. We used to do things that we liked doing. It was fun. And, and now we're not allowed to. And now I have to live in fear that someone's going to point out that I did it 10 years ago. It's not fair. I'm not Weinstein. It's not fair. No, exactly. And I think that this sense that that was the norm, but norms change and you have to move along as they do. And Me Too was more the lifting of a rock. And I think that retroactively looking back and seeing the what, what was considered normal, what was acceptable, the way the way offices operated, the way they still do. I don't think it's simply looking back. It's we're looking, you know, at at that straight line that goes between the 1950s and the first decades of the 21st century. Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel like uh, to their anxiety, it gets us back to the question of forgiveness. Like they live in fear, like, yeah, that sucks. That anxiety, like, you know, I felt aspects of that. I'm certain that, you know, I'm old enough to have lived in times when a certain kind of joking was acceptable that is no longer acceptable. Will someone remember, like, I, I, you know, I think every guy and probably every person is like combing through their history to think like, is there something that's going to come back? That's a shitty way to feel. But like, then, then think about it. But here's the thing. You know what I mean? Go through, do, do that work and, and think about what you might have said. And maybe you do have to apologize to somebody. But, okay, Me Too has been about focusing on, you know, misconduct, harassment, assault, violent, you know, sexualized behavior. But at the same time, I'm sitting here and we're having this conversation and I can't help but think that we haven't refocused the lens. Like we're still talking about the conversation through the old mindset. We're talking about the guys. How do they feel? What are they doing? You know, they're they're angry, they're upset. But we're still, it's all about them because they remain in the positions of power. I mean, they have the platforms, et cetera. They, this is the paradox, I think, of, of talking about Me Too at the same time. We need to broaden this conversation to talk about, you know, the the other side. And we're hearing voices of women, but we're still we're still kind of agonizing about these guys. And I'm tired of it. I just I want to, you know, broaden this conversation. 
I agree. I just feel like that is, uh, I mean, that's it right there, right? We have tremendous curiosity about these guys. Even when we're not looking to redeem them, what's their life like now? I want to hear from them. What's he doing? And the victims, people kind of get icked out by victims. But that's because they, the, the very power and, you know, this is a paradox, that the very power that allowed them to continue for decades in some cases, be abusive, be controlling, be bullies, harass, assault, is exactly that power is still somehow shrouding them. Yeah. We're still there. For instance, I mean, we haven't talked about the fact David Mamet is talking about doing a play about Weinstein. And that's because he remains a cultural sort of ideal in terms of the powerful male. We haven't gotten away from that kind of trope. And that's what's concerning, that year into Me Too, we're still talking about, you know, Gian Gomeshi, Harvey Weinstein. Let's, what are they thinking? What are they doing? You know, like, why aren't we having a play about, I don't know, the first person who came for, I mean, legions of people who are on the other side of this conversation. What, I mean, what, what they're thinking is, is really fucking boring. It's like, can I get a radio show again? You know? Can, 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 <laughs> no, what? I'm talking about the women. I'm not talking. I know. I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Like, like like this curiosity we have with guys who aren't that interesting. It's like, can I get a radio show? Can I get laid again? Can I act the way I used to act? Mammoth, I mean, Mammoth was the original MRA writing Oleana. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Here, but here's the, yeah. So these oh, guys. What's he got to say? He said it 30 years ago. They have ago. so much time on their hands. Gian Gomeshi, you know, he has time to sing karaoke and take the train from London to Paris. Why isn't, you know, if he's a so-called creative mind, figure out his route to his retribution and redemption. Like, let him figure it out. It's not my job. Hey, quick note that shortly after we recorded that segment, word broke that Ian Baruma is no longer the editor of the New York Review of Books. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. You can email me about it. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at Canadaland. Anne Kingston, where can people find you? I can be reached at Anne underline Kingston. Anne with an E. And people can read you on McLean's website as well. They can. Our website is canadalandshow.com. And uh, on the day that Gomeshi's essay came out, we published a huge story by Graham Gordon, a really thoughtful story about how a documentary about exploitation of children in Hollywood kind of got shuffled away from TIFF. And it's complicated. It's, uh, it's worth reading. Check it out. This episode was produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us at patreon.com slash candidland. Thank you.